Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hey everyone, welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and today I'm speaking with Chris Norris, who is the director of the Sioka Center for Entrepreneurship at Santa Clara. Um, I'll briefly introduce Chris, and then I reached out to him this week and asked if he wanted to add a little voice memo message in light of the recent coronavirus and shelter-in-place situation. And so the first couple minutes are a special message from him about some reading recommendations and things to to do in this shelter-in-place time. Chris is the director of the Sioka Center, as I said. He serve, has served on boards of many different high-tech companies, including Ethnix, which is a quantum programmable computer technology, Solar Ear, which is solar hearing aids, St. Anthony's Foundation, Elevated Honey, and the Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship. Before joining Santa Clara, Chris was the CEO of Alta Devices. He spent 17 years at Cypress Semiconductors and began his career at Intel. Chris received a master's in electrical engineering from Santa Clara in 1992. And then in this conversation, we dive into Chris's career journey, solar tech, investing, venture capital, how to think like an entrepreneur, regardless of your career, whether Chris is optimistic about the future of entrepreneurship, and then how the Sioka Center is spreading its mission of uh, educating the student body about how to think like an entrepreneur. So here's the special message from Chris. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Norris. Well, Gavin and I first recorded this podcast in late February of 2020. Who could have ever imagined what a difference these four weeks would make? I can just imagine that if, as a CEO, I'd attempted to convince my board of directors that a contingency plan was necessary, just in case a pandemic was to paralyze the entire world. I would have thought I'd lost my mind. But here we are. During these months when we're sheltering in place, disoriented, frustrated, and if we're honest, probably a bit scared, let me offer up two distractions for you. Both are books, but this might be just the right time to read something not required for one of your classes. First, get on Amazon and buy the book Heroic Leadership by Chris Lowney. It describes how the Jesuits created the world's largest network of higher education institutions and an organization that's lasted over 450 years. They did this using the same mindset and behaviors that modern companies value today. The ability to innovate, to remain flexible and adapt constantly, to set ambitious goals, to think globally and move quickly, and to take risks. Imagine getting on a ship, sailing for months to a land few people had ever heard of, with little likelihood of even arriving, let alone ever returning back home. That's more extreme than any startup. To survive, let alone thrive, the Jesuits had to be self-aware and know their values. They had to be adaptable to the changing world. And they had to be willing to pursue alternative courses of actions as the circumstances might dictate. Second, and this is more fun and perhaps more relevant too, is to buy or dust off a copy of Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. If you've only seen the movie, you've missed a wonderful introduction and vision of what online virtual reality education might look like in the future. The movie edited all that out but the first 120 pages or so of the book are all about the main character, Wade, attending high school in an online VR environment. 
between what you are personally experiencing as you begin to attend online classes and how the future is imagined in Ready Player One, perhaps you'll see how this problem we are experiencing now is also an opportunity. As you read these books, reflect on some of the key elements of the entrepreneurial mindset, empathy for others, viewing problems as opportunities, the ability to assess and manage risk, and being a champion of value creation. These are the skills that you will need to lead us forward into a better future, and what a great time to practice these skills under real-world circumstances. There's a lot that happens in our lives that we can't directly control. This pandemic is a perfect example. But we can continue to put one foot in front of the other as we work towards our goals. We can strive to make the best decisions possible knowing we possess imperfect information. And we can take care of ourselves, our families, our friends, and those around us. Thank you for listening, and go Broncos! Thanks, Chris. Now here's the interview. Um, maybe to start out, what were your career plans or aspirations when you were in like college or grad school? Well, I came from a family where you were either an engineer or a teacher. And generally, if you were uh, a boy, you were an engineer. And if you were a female or a girl, you were, you were a, uh, a teacher. So my mom was a teacher. My aunt's a teacher. My sister's a teacher. My brother's an engineer. Um, and so I, I'm an engineer. My dad's an engineer. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I was when I was growing up, I always kind of knew I was going to be an engineer. It was just a matter of what kind. And when I went to um, to school, so I got my electrical engineering degree from University of Idaho, and uh, I started off in um, mechanical engineering and didn't really like it that well. Switched to physics. Um, didn't really like that that well, but as part of the physics um, program, I took an electrical engineering class, a circuits class, and thought that's just the greatest thing in the world is all this math, and, and I, you know, happened to be good at math, and so I um, switched to electrical engineering, and mm-hmm. that's that's what I ended up doing, and loved it, and then, um, and ultimately got a computer science degree or computer engineering degree, which mostly focused on software development, which is a great combination of, of the two. Yeah, and then at what point did you kind of make the switch from more technical engineering to kind of broader business? Strategy? Strategy, consulting, investing, yeah. leadership. Yeah, I spent uh, four years at Intel uh, in in development and mostly in process development. And then um, when I moved to uh, Cyprus, I was in circuit development, which is developing integrated circuits, chips, basically. And uh, uh, and so that was. Um, I did that probably for another three or four years. And then while I was there, the way projects were organized is uh, circuit designers would be responsible for all the aspects of a, uh, of a, of a chip. So you had, to figure, you had to work with the marketing team and the assembly team and manufacturing teams and everybody that was part of that. So eventually, if you were leading projects for very long there, you were the person who came to know about all of the business aspects are associated with the chip. So there was a time when if you would look at the vice presidents at Cypress Semiconductor, virtually all of them came out of development and most of them came out of out of chip design. And um, so somewhere after about four years, I started thinking like, well, I want to run a business, want to run a business and um, started chewing on the CEO's ear about it. And uh, ultimately the opportunity came up. So I think it was in like 1992 that I started running a, uh, a division as a vice president and uh, so that was, uh, I graduated in 84, so I was about eight years out of college, I guess. Mm. So so pretty quickly then in your career, you kind of transitioned from more engineering to the leadership. Yeah, relative, re- yeah. relatively quickly. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I like engineering, but I'm kind of a 
people person. Um, so I like meeting with people and talking to people and working on kind of larger programs and bigger teams. I, I get I get bored if I have to do the same thing over and over again for very long. And it seemed to me like, especially in circuit design, you spend a lot of time what feels like staring at a computer doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Computer science is pretty close mm-hmm. to the same. Hmm. And then what were some of like the leadership lessons that you learned from more more like managing teams, I guess I'm thinking of than like broader companies, but maybe about like working with people or managing projects or like what did you learn about that earlier in your career? You know, the thing that was hardest for me to learn was to um, uh, not, not try to be involved in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially coming out of an engineering role where you're kind of a, an expert. And then if you're managing people who are doing that same kind of work, it's just easy to feel like you should still be in the middle of all that work. And um, it took a long time. I mean, decades to sort of really figure out how to keep hands out of other people's work and let them go, go kind of do their thing. Uh, so I'd say you know, overall in my career, that's, that's just been one of the most important ones. There are other things like, you know, how do you keep a company running when people are leaving and joining all the time, right? Mm-hmm. There's this concept of building business processes that allow functions to happen, even if the person in that function has only been there a few days. And so like, how do you make sure everybody gets their paycheck on time, right? Well, you build a system, make sure that, you know, the first day of the pay period, whatever is supposed to happen, happens. And it turns out you know, virtually every aspect of a company can, can, can be be controlled that way that mm-hmm. you can have a process that ensures it's supposed to, it runs the way it's supposed to run regardless of of the people there you know maybe sometimes better than others but the basics should should happen um and so this kind of concept around uh, thinking about business processes routinizing what you do creating specs so that in documents so that people who are coming into a job function or a role can learn about how that job should be done and how others did it uh i think it's really valuable and um it's especially important in things like semiconductors because they're not very forgiving of mistakes. They tend just not to work. And so you can spend you know, millions and millions of dollars and lots of lost market share trying to recover from a broken integrated circuit process or integrated circuit. So you start to learn that, you know, how you build those and how you make sure they work has to really be tightly controlled. And once you get a culture that knows how to do that, that tends to often start spreading into, well, why don't we do accounting that way and procurement that way and everything else, you know, in the company that way. So Companies like Intel, you know, they really exemplify that culture. Even today, it's a very routinized, organized place. Hmm. Very different, I think, than most startups these days, right? Where it's just like focus on chaos and coming up with new stuff all the time. And I think it's a it's a really very tough transition for for companies that kind of come up in this day and age of really fast moving product development and mostly in software. So it's relatively easy to fix compared to hardware and. Uh, uh, and then, you know, you get to a point, though, where you start to care about, you know, you're handling my money now. So I really want that done right every time. And uh, the same companies that invent, you know, the invent fintech came out of, you know, kind of the chaos of social media. And uh, so I think that there's some of these things become relevant again, even in a world where where the genesis of the companies is kind of completely different than how I how I came up. Hmm. Yeah. And then so now you do a lot of work with startups and entrepreneurship and thinking about the entrepreneurial mindset. But how did that uh, come about in, in you or how did you develop an interest in in startups and entrepreneurship? Hmm. Or what was there maybe a point in your career when that started to become a priority? Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I, I was raised in this little town in Idaho, um, population 23, so a tiny little <laughs> town. I, um, and my, my dad said so he, he was an engineer. And he worked at the Idaho National Labs uh, for, you know, kind of the first part of his career. And then he decided he should have a farm. And so he um, uh, did nothing but farming and on a, you know, on a dairy farm for, I don't know, a dozen years or more, my, kind of my whole, my whole childhood. And um, so most of the time when I was a child, we were, we were on, on a farm. And so when I um, went to college, I had, uh, you know, a couple of things in mind. One is escape the farm. And, um, you know, and the other is, you know, I want to, I want to run my own business as well. And uh, so I had those, those two things in mind. I didn't, you know, I knew going to school would be the right, the right start. And when I was at University of Idaho, I was looking for a, um, uh, an internship. And I had a professor that was telling me about this uh, research, um, like sabbatical he'd done in Silicon Valley. And I didn't, I didn't really know what Silicon Valley was. I thought it was like literally just like a valley where they mine stuff. And I, you know, I just did not have a, a sense for, for what it is. But uh, uh, I ended up getting a, uh, an internship then at Varian Associates, which is in Palo Alto. And when I drove down here the first time and I saw, you know, HP and Apple and Max Tor and all, all these things, I was just like palm trees, like this is the coolest thing ever. And, and, uh, uh, so, so then my whole my whole you know brain just shifted at, at that point. I was a junior in college then, and so when I um uh, when I was at uh, Varian, then I was working on uh, antennas, and radio frequency type type products for um, uh, cancer treatment, and they were hiring um, a bunch of of people in who were all in a separate room, and we're working on these things called uh, microcontrollers. And so I, I get talking to these guys here, saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're." taking all these, these are uh, called clinics, but they're basically large radiotherapy machines and moving them to be computer controlled rather than hand, hand adjusted. And it's just like this second light bulb went off. Then it's like, I am about to miss like the major trend of a lifetime here where uh, I'm working on, on radio frequency antennas and um, everybody else is working on integrated circuits. So I, I kind of went back and shuffled around my senior year workload to focus on um, integrated circuits and semiconductor physics and focus on getting a job in Silicon Valley. And my idea was go to a big company that's really well respected where you'll learn all the stuff you need to learn and then go do a startup. So I um, so I went to Intel and spent my four years there and I thought, okay, I've learned what I'm going to learn. I'm going to go to a much smaller uh, company. So Intel was 23,000 people at the time. Cypress was 300, had had gone public not, not long before. And um, the CEO still interviewed everybody um, when you joined uh, uh, Cypress. So it was it was pretty small. And then I thought, okay, I'll spend four years there, and I will have I will have seen a big company, a small company, and I'm going to go start my own company. And then 17 years went by, mm. and so, so I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, I've, I'm turning 40, and I'm I'm I've run a big division, um, you know, half a billion dollars a year, 500 employees, big big part of the company. And I'm just in the boardroom the whole time, sitting on my butt, listening to Sarbanes Oxley stuff. And I'm just like, oh my God, this can't be why I came to Silicon Valley. So I, uh, I just kind of got decided one day, uh, you know, I literally woke up, it was like a Wednesday and um, thought if I wasn't already in this job, I would never take it. Why? Mm-hmm. And so I just, once I had that, that recognition, I just thought, okay, I, I just can't stay. So, uh, so I told the big boss I'm, I'm leaving and, um, uh, I didn't know any venture capitalists at the time. But, you know, in a big company, you tend to have all the resources you need are in the company. We were like 8,000 people then at Cypress. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you need something. There's, uh, you know, just doesn't matter. There's somebody there. So you uh, remarkably have very little outside network. Um, 
so I had, had a friend who knew a, a venture capitalist. He introduced me. I met with him. He introduced me to a few more. And I just spent the summer then interviewing um, and meeting uh, VCs. And I found a CEO job then at uh, a company called Microdisplay that was uh, uh, doing uh, imaging chips. And so that was kind of the, the beginning. So I joined that as, as CEO. Um, and uh, you know, it was one of, one of those things where I felt like I'd, I'd kind of like arrived, right? You know, finally, after all these years, I'm now, you know, in a startup in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. uh, doing what I was, was supposed to be doing and um, have never regretted that. Hmm. Yeah. Like what, what lessons came out of that CEO experience? Or I guess you were subsequently also CEO of a different company, right? Yeah. So kind of what did, what did you learn from those CEO experiences? Um, well, one thing is that uh, being a CEO of startups is way harder than being a VP at a company. Huh. <laughs> it turns out there, you know, they have different challenges, but it is just so hard when you are responsible for everything. And then, um, you know, I, I, I was uh, not the first CEO, like the fourth CEO at the uh, imaging company, but I w- was the founding CEO at, mm-hmm. at Ulta. And so um, it's even worse in some ways there, the amount of responsibility you feel, because you know, I interviewed every single person that ever joined there. Um, you know, I interviewed and I convinced to join the company and told them how great it was going to be. And so you just feel this responsibility all the time not to let them down. And then um, uh, you're taking, you know, we took hundreds of millions of dollars from investors. So you have this enormous responsibility not to let them down. And so you just like, it just never ends. Right? It just seems like you just have have this bigger and, and, and bigger burden. Aside from it's, it's, you know, you're trying to build a new product and create a new market and learn how to sell and build a company around it. And I mean, there's just a lot of work, work to do. But, you know, I, I would say that, you know, kind of my biggest takeaway from all that is just how very different the, the jobs are um, mm. and, and how how many new skills you have to develop when you when you move. Probably either either way, uh, you know, either from a startup to a big company or from a big company to a um, uh, to a startup. You know, I think another thing I, I've, I've realized is the teams that you form in a startup are really a lot at least for me, a lot tighter than the teams and friendships I formed inside Cyprus. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have a, a hand. I worked, you know, Cyprus for 17 years, and I have a handful of people I keep in close contact with. Um, uh, in uh, both the startups I was in, if you you know come to any kind of a party or get together at our house, there's going to be people from those those two companies there. Mm-hmm. And so it's just remarkable about how much how much tighter those those connections have remained. And, uh, and so I think there's something about, you know, going through life and death experiences, which you always do in a startup mm-hmm. together that just you just have the shared bond that's different than working on hard projects together. And then everybody kind of disbands and works on something else for a while. And mm-hmm. the life and death experiences in a big company are so diffuse that you know, you don't you don't feel them quite the same way as you do when it's this group that, you know, are working every day trying to build something and you're about to run out of money. And, you know, it's just those things. Hmm. Uh, those are different, different feelings. Yeah. Is it is it necessary for people working in startups to kind of have this like 110 percent all in like nothing else in life matters perspective to make it work because that's kind of the the romanticized stories you hear about startup founders you know working around the clock eating pizza sleeping on the couch by their computer coding way right like is that is that necessary for entrepreneurs um i i certainly don't think so um you know i think there are times that 
you, you know, you just have to get projects done and, and they take whatever effort they take. And sometimes that's a lot of effort. In my experience, these things are all marathons. Um, you know, they're just not sprints. And if there's very few people that can sustain sprint performance in a reasonable way um, running a marathon. So there are a few um, that, that manage to do it. But I think most people burn out. This is part of the reason. You know, senior, you know, experienced management com- comes into a startup company mm-hmm. is because the uh, the team has spent all their time just, you know, burning themselves out on technical problems and, you know, not built the relationships they need and the rest of the company infrastructure that's needed, mm-hmm. the, you know, ability for the team to function kind of in a normal fashion. Mm-hmm. And so sprint mode performance is important, but it's I think it's, it's a marathon. Um, you know, I really mm-hmm. kind of I believe that, that strongly that you can't can't think clearly after a while. I mean, it's, I even feel that way, you know, like a regular week that if you go and work on the weekends, you know, it's just like, well, where was the time to actually reframe the problem, which is kind of a fundamental part of, of problem solving and kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, elements of designing new things is mm-hmm. like sometimes the framework that you're operating is just not the right framework anymore. And mm-hmm. you don't see it unless you're able to kind of put a minus sign in front of everything, you know, like what if everything I think is, is true, isn't true. And it's the opposite. Um, and, and it's just hard to do that when you're in there every day working on mm-hmm. it, you got to have some time away from it to, to get some context. Yeah. I, I want to touch briefly on solar energy too. Yeah. Um, so kind of what is, what is your experience there and how will like the future of, of energy look, mm-hmm. do you think? Yeah. When I, um, when I was at Blue Run Ventures, in between my, my two startups, I um, was there as a venture partner. So I had part of my responsibility was managing deal flow. And the other other part of it was looking at new areas um, that mm-hmm. the firm might be interested in. And so so while I was there, I, I started getting very interested in, in all things sustainable and um mm-hmm. And I looked at a lot of different things. I was especially interested in uh, f- food supplies and, um, uh, you know, and things around food safety. And so I spent quite a bit of time looking at that and then batteries. And I eventually concluded that I should probably focus in an area that had electrons involved because there's so much of my experience was based on that. And mm-hmm. the rest of these were, were interesting, but kind of disconnects. So I started zeroing in on that. And I had a, an investor at a different firm that introduced me to um, a guy named Harry Atwater at Caltech and another guy, Eli Yabinovich at UC Berkeley, both of whom have very deep solar, um, um, you know, solar semiconductor type research programs. And they had this cool technology that they were hoping could get commercialized, and um, uh, we put together a business plan that was that was you know ultimately funded, and so that's uh, you know that that's what that how that company came to be. But I I, I thought then, and I and I, I still think now that it's it's just an you know the, the the source of energy that just comes down at us every day, and if we don't capture it, it's just wasted. There's just not many, not much else like that. And if you don't, if you're going to choose not to exploit that, well, like I mean, what, what you know, that's the easy one, right? Why why would you spend time on all the other hard ones of uh, of uh, storing water and building batteries and all these other you know uh, nuclear power plants? You know, I, I, you know, there's there's a whole issue of how do you how do you transition in a big way over time? Because there are some problems with solar, but the, the energy's there. It's coming down every day. Uh, it always just seemed um, uh, crazy to me to not be all over trying to capture that. And and the biggest complaint about it, Ben, is just not not cost effective. And um, but it's semiconductors, and so semiconductors are defined by these 
curves, mostly under, you know, it's called Moore's Law, but it's just as if you keep working at it, the cost just keeps dropping by square law. And um, and that's happened in, um, in solar cells, too, for slightly different reasons. But manufacturing costs, when I started Alta, were about five and a half dollars per um, per watt to buy a, a watt of energy generating uh, solar cells. Today, they're like 16 cents. Uh, you know, it's just uh, totally just unbelievable, right? You know, you know, several orders of magnitude difference in just a little over 10 years. Um, and so, uh, so, so to me, it's, it's just an, an extraordinary, clean, very low environmental side effect uh, energy capture um, uh, technology or energy conversion technology. The main problem with it is that it's not continuous, right? Where does it go and what do you do at night? And so that's where, where everything else comes into play. You have to sort of figure out, like, what is your portfolio of energy generation sources that allow you to have continuous energy? And, uh, um, you know, and unfortunately, there's, you know, most of those remain fossil fuel based. And um, uh, and so I think there's still a lot of invention that needs needs to happen either in, in storage so that you can shift uh, energy that you produce or capture during the day to something that's usable at night or um, uh, you know continue to rely on ever more efficient fossil fuel and um, you know gas plants and that sort of thing which are quite quite efficient already. You know, one of the things that kills, um, you know, companies like, like GE and other power plant producers is the gain, the improvement in efficiency of power plants has been so rapid, even in, in, in like gas turbine plants that the old plants become, um, uh, uh, uneconomical. And so they end up having to, you know, take those offline in, in lieu of a new one. And so they, um, they have a hard time making money at that because they're constantly, um, uh, nobody wants to buy any of the old stuff. They got to mm-hmm. come, come continue to reinvent the new one and it provides an opportunity for new entrants. And so it's a challenging business economically for mm-hmm. all the companies who are in there, but a lot of it's driven by just how fast it's changing, which is mm-hmm. a good thing for the consumer. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see how, how quickly we can move to a more clean energy world. I yeah. know. But, and then I want to touch on uh, kind of Santa Clara and the Sioka Center as well. So maybe first, like, how, why were you so interested in this, in this role? And like, what is the, the vision for entrepreneurship or for the center at, at Santa Clara? You might, my connections for, uh, to Santa Clara go, go way back as we talked um, to my, um, uh, my master's degree back in, in 92, but I've remained you know, relatively active with Santa Clara in the last um, uh, 10 or 12 years. I was a, a mentor for um, what was called the CAPE program, the California Program for Entrepreneurship, which was run through the School of Business. I'm a mentor for Miller Center, um, and then uh, my wife is a professor in the law school, so we've, we've been pretty immersed in um, uh, all things Santa Clara for, for a long time. Um, after um, Alta, I... Um, uh, was looking for kind of opportunities that were just you know different where I felt like I could could take these skills that I developed over the course of, of 30 some years and put them to use uh, in, in, largely in a more social um, uh, uh, area so I looked at uh, nonprofits mostly around things like smart cities and, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing and could never find anything that was quite the right fit at the leadership role um, mm-hmm. 
uh, mainly because like the fundraising requirements for those mm-hmm. are so different than raising money for for a, a company. Uh, you know, when you're uh, you know raising venture capital, it's like you know I'm going to build a product in a business and I'm going to sell it for this. You give me money to do that, I give you more money back. Right? It's a transaction. It's not that hard to to sell. You know, selling why someone should give money for no apparent return and no well-defined product. That is just like a whole, it's a different skill set. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, so, so I, I wasn't able to find anything um, quite, quite lined up. So uh, I was about to join a, another solar startup and uh, this center um, began recruiting for a new director to reposition the center as a campus-wide uh, uh, entity. So the mission is to instill an entrepreneurial mindset campus-wide. So this, the stakeholders are students from every discipline, graduate and undergraduate, law, education, uh, the arts and sciences, uh, business engineering. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's all inclusive, So it's, which is very challenging. And then it's it's focuses on you know providing interdisciplinary learning opportunities so that we can kind of you know provide interdisciplinary bridges for students so that they can take skills from one area and connect them to others and find ways to sort of self-actualize in whatever areas they're they're interested um, so to me and, and and then for this role they, they especially wanted somebody that had uh, Silicon Valley experience kind of across across the, the range of big company small company uh, investor uh, experience and and then it was interested in in kind of the bridge building aspects, which is quite a managerial and sort of interpersonal challenge. Um, so it seemed seemed really interesting from that point of view. That's and that's the part that you know, I like about it the most is that it is such a uh, interdisciplinary role and and is is inclusive in terms of what its what its mission is. And so so that's that's what attracted me to it. I, so I threw my hat in the ring and I, I happened to get the job. And so um, uh, uh, so I I joined them and didn't really ha- have much hesitation hesitation about about joining and it's been great much harder than i thought it would be um Mm. but uh certainly from a fulfilling point of view it's 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 exactly Mm. what i'd hoped for yeah well there's there's probably a relatively small chunk of students who are interested in in being an entrepreneur in the sense of starting their own company right so what does it mean for like a non-entrepreneur to have an entrepreneurial mindset yeah yeah great great question great question yeah so it's part of what you have to we have to explain every every time we talk to (laughs) to someone right talk about entrepreneurial mindset they think oh you're talking about starting companies and no that's that's not it's not not what we're talking about at all but when we talk about entrepreneurship in silicon valley and that's that's what we always mean so you, you can you can understand that but an entrepreneurial mindset is is um, uh, you know, helping helping people um, uh, learn to think in a way that they have natural empathy with uh, their stakeholders. So they're able to define a stakeholder, understand what the stakeholders need, understand what it is they're delivering to the stakeholder, and have some ability maybe to measure whether that was successful. But it's basically like, who are you trying to help? Right, trying to understand that. Um, uh, another is seeing uh, naturally seeing problems as um, opportunities instead of you know barriers and uh, you know bad things to work on. There are things like ah, here's an opportunity to really do something different mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, create value, the willingness um, and ability to, to manage and tolerate risk, mm-hmm. and then maybe an overall awareness of value creation, right? I mean, those kind of this, those are things that if you're going to build a company, you'd better have all of those. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to find a new job or make a difference in a big company or, you know, guide your family through all of its hard times, um, you know, those those are all, heck, even finishing, fixing up your house, right? You know, those are all, those are all skill sets that are super valuable. And and so when we talk about entrepreneurial mindset, this, this what we're, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about like how to help students learn the 
those acquire those skills while they're while they're in in, uh, um, in at Santa Clara, so that when they come out, they can add that to whatever academic disciplines they've been studying and uh, have a shot at being able to kind of build a life and the career that that they want for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the way we do that is is kind of on on you know twofold. One is in um, uh, providing an, an academic infrastructure. So much of what the center is doing is uh, we're, we're hiring faculty, uh, developing uh, new courses. Well, we're helping, we're hiring new faculty, helping faculty develop new courses, uh, um, sponsoring faculty workshops so they can also mm-hmm. um, uh, d- develop um, f- funding research that, that faculty can perform. Um, and then uh, creating uh, extracurricular projects that would provide experiential learning opportunities, so that and that are mostly interdisciplinary in nature, so that students mm-hmm. from you know different schools can can work together. So that so that's the idea, and that's most of what we're working on. We have a, a kind of suite of of activities that are more traditional about starting mm-hmm. companies. Um, you know, mostly in competitions, venture capital competition, mm-hmm. business pitch competition, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of a lot of resources for students who do want to start their own venture that mm-hmm. that the center provides. But um, by far, the bulk of the funding and the bulk of, of mm. my time is spent on implementing these uh, interdisciplinary and academic uh, programs. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm curious from your experience as both uh, an investor and then choose, you know, picking companies, uh, whether run by students or alumni or whatever, for, for uh, accelerators and various other uh, programs here. Like, what do you, what do you look for in in a startup that you're either going to invest in or, or mentor or, um, you know, support in some other way? Like what, what, what separates the majority of startups that fail from the few that succeed? Um, yeah, it, it, okay. Also interesting question. And I don't, if I, you know, I don't, I don't know anyone knows the answer to that. There's probably a few, <laughs> few people who do, but I'm not one of them. The, um, uh, when I was at, at, at Blue Run uh, Ventures, had this thing where they would basically anyone who sent in a business plan would get a response. So it didn't really matter how you got how you got connected in. You could mail it in or drop it off at the front desk. Live introduction, whatever. Everybody got a response. And so the new guys would work on the ones that were not like you know warm introductions from somebody that mm-hmm. was well known to the firm. So I would see you know five pitches a day, um, you know pretty much every day. And so it's it's just you just see a lot of pitches. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's part of why it would explain why venture capital seems so quick on the trigger to decide whether something's good or bad is because when you see that many, uh, I assume it's how doctors feel after a while. You just become kind of immune, just another one. I know, I, I know, I recognize this thing right away. And you recognize whether it's something the firm was never going to invest in because it's just not a market for them, or there's 500 people working on it and it's stupid, or whatever, or, you, or we think it's stupid. You know, just all the all the different answers and um, uh, and and so the ones that ended up standing out are, are kind of always have this characteristic of they've got a really well-defined market. I'd say that's, that's very common. So there's no kind of hand-waving or guesswork about who has pain, how the pain is being addressed, and what's the monetary transaction that's going mm-hmm. to create create economic value. And... Uh, uh, and when you when you have those things, you're 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 gonna you're gonna get a lot of traction. You, you know, you may or may not get an investment, but you're gonna get a lot of attention because those are what's kind of the root of the business. There's a secondary stuff. You know, is it interesting technology? Is it defensible? Can you build it? Um, those kind of things. But I, I think they're. Those are less of an issue anymore outside of, you know, like core, like mostly hardware, but mm-hmm. core technology. It's often about have you defined a market that uh, where you really understand the need for some reason or that others don't don't understand. You have some some uncommon insight and or unfair insight. And 
you know how to meet that need and you know how to monetize that, mm-hmm. that, that, that. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are classics of Uber and Airbnb and mm-hmm. that, that sort of thing where they saw this opportunity early on, um, uh, demonstrated that they understood the need and could meet it and alleviate the pain and had a method for monetizing it fairly early on. And so, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so I, I think those, Th- those stand out here. I think I, I have kind of a different view. Like I, mm-hmm. I assume if I if I was the greatest person at choosing what the next big win is, well, then you know I I should be working at Andreessen Horowitz or someplace, right? Um, and um, so I so I just assume I'm not, and I assume what I what I am pretty good at is knowing who are good entrepreneurs or who could mm-hmm. become good entrepreneurs, and. Um, and so most of our process here factors that in pretty heavily on mm-hmm. and like in like the accelerator, getting into our accelerator program is competitive. We only have 12 spots. Um, and so we look pretty heavily at are these entrepreneurs that we think our program can make a difference to. It's going to move them forward. Mm-hmm. So whether they're working on the right venture or not, maybe is. It's not completely immaterial to our decision making, but it's mm-hmm. it's not the most important thing, right? And a, a, a economic outcome on their particular venture isn't fundamentally how we make that that decision. It's more mm-hmm. about is this an entrepreneur that we think we can help, and that we think if this isn't the right venture, we will have given them tools that are really going to make a difference on their on their next venture. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, we also want great ec- economic outcomes, so we we do pay attention to that, but. Who knows if we can can choose that? And there are so many other existential factors in what mm-hmm. what which companies win and and which which don't. So so we focus mostly on can we help and kind of keeping it in line with our mission as a teaching uh, university. Yeah, and then my my last bigger question is just around like thinking about entrepreneurship globally. I know that I've seen some stats that entrepreneurship is kind of declining. And I think when, when we see all these, you know, enormous global problems, some people can criticize Silicon Valley saying, oh, you're making, you know, the, the laundry app or something, yeah. right? When we, we don't have energy and there's poverty and all these huge global challenges. So are you, are you optimistic about the future of entrepreneurship? And if so, why? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely am. Uh, the why part, I guess I got I to gotta, uh, sound smart on. But um, I read this paper quite a while ago. It was when I first started Alta, where I still remember this quote that just says it was about um, climate change. And it says, mm-hmm. if we all do a little, a little will get done. And, mm-hmm. and I, I've always sort of felt that way, even though that, that that's, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, sort of a tongue in cheek thing. But the point of the paper was we have to think really big about what we're going to try to do in this world and that a lot of these things aren't as simple as... Um, you, you know, turning off the water to your lawn. You know, it, it, it almost makes no difference in climate change. Actually, it's more of a, a you know resource usage thing. And so, I've always felt that the only way we're really going to make a difference is is not what we do here and in this country. It's what we enable the rest of the world to do, right? Because we have these kind of enormous populations that are coming into their own, want and deserve a lifestyle like ours, but the carbon load and the planet's capability of providing that are really limited. So what, how are we going to do that other than, than uh, helping a new generation of students and adults solve those problems? And so I think that that 
the uh, this this next generation of of, um, uh, of 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 students and young adults is extremely well tuned into those kind of problems. Um, you know, much more so than my generation, which still seems to be mostly in denial. Um, and so I, I'm I'm very optimistic, and I think it's just uh, about that and about um, you know the the awareness of the problem and the willingness to work on it. And uh, I think so. What we have to do is just continue to keep people thinking big and encourage them to think really big and think global. Like, what can you do that will scale to help you know a billion people in you know very, you know in each of several different. Um, continents. I, I kind of look at it a little bit as a learning process, and I don't, I don't really know how it all ends up, but when people fool around with something that seems like, you know, seems a little trivial to me, um, you know, why, why spend your time on that? They still learn an awful lot about what it takes to start a company, right? And, uh, and you know, how what's involved in getting a team together? How do you raise money? And how do you actually sell something to somebody? So I, I have this part of me that's that's convinced that those lessons turn into some goodness somewhere else downstream. I don't I don't know if there's research on that that shows that's the case, but I certainly know that that's good experiential learning and uh, and. And, and you know we shouldn't we should think about it that way too, right? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm fundamentally don't don't think that most people are driven by I'm going to go create something so I can get really rich. There are certainly some, but I I, I certainly the, the entrepreneurs I have met and I you know I've met a lot in my life. They're usually driven because they believe in something that's something bigger than themselves. They they want to want to build that. Sometimes it's well thought out. Sometimes it's not. You know, someone wanting to build a new audio system. It isn't usually because they want to get rich. Um, and even though there's lots of other audio systems, who needs a new audio system? There's just something about it that to them is like unlocking something about the world around you that you're not hearing now that you should hear. And they just feel it feels really important to them. So even something we might kind of trivialize why I work on that, you know, they're not doing it because it's, it's, trivial or they're just trying to find something to do. It's something they really believe in. And uh, so I, so I respect that. And I, I think it's part of the kind of overall balance and we should, we should help those people too. And hopefully if, uh, if whatever they're working on doesn't work out, they meet some other people along the way that, mm-hmm. that are working on something that, that can make a, a, a more significant difference. You know, Miller Center, I, I, I mentored for, for Miller Center for, um, for about four years now. And, you know, those companies, uh, you know, Kind of continue to amaze me in the sense of you know in, in terms of this sort of passionate commitment to a specific cause. I, I've I'm more of a gray area guy. I, I find things that you know I, I always try to find the balance. And I'm um, uh, if something doesn't appear to be working, you know, then I I kind of switch my approach and sometimes switch what I'm working on completely to stuff that I think will work. Um, and you know I, I run into entrepreneurs all the time that are just like this is what they believe. This is how they believe it should be solved, and they'll commit like all their time and all their energy and all their treasure to that end. And and I I really I mean I I, I deeply respect that, and I think it has it, it uh, you know I think. That does make a difference, and it inspires others. And um, uh, you know, and, and so it's you know those things in aggregate. You know, that's kind of the, the Miller Center approach. Do a thousand of those, it's going to make a big difference, right? Um, and and so I, I think there's, there's also just you have to kind of look at how do you, you know, can you corral all these efforts in a way or encourage them in a way that in in bulk that they really can make a difference. Mm-hmm. So I, I so I think there's lots of different ways to think about it. Yeah, cool. Well, there, there's a couple shorter questions I like to sure. ask each guest at the end. So the the first one is what what piece of advice would you give to a, an incoming first year student at Santa Clara? Um, 
get involved. You know, I know it sounds probably trite, but how many people have that exact answer? But I, I said all the time, you know, the way you, you meet people is to join clubs and get involved in projects and you, uh, uh, you'll meet you'll meet new people and um, get new experiences and it'll open up uh, uh, you know kind of you know pull back the curtains from the world that you know is generally pretty well focused by your your upbringing and your parents and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think it's super valuable to to do that early on um, and if you don't do it you just get sucked into I, if you're not careful just more of the same of studying a lot of alone time and it's it's uh this is college especially it's a time when you really do get to meet a lot of people in your demographic all doing the same thing and it's unusual right to, mm. to find that in life and so that, i think the, the most concentrated time it ever happens is the four or five years you're at you're at college so get involved i think that's the single most important thing yeah are there any favorite places in the world you've traveled to Wow. Uh, uh, there's a, a, a lot of places I've, I've traveled to that I've really liked. Um, I just came back from uh, Portugal. So that's mm. um, so Lisbon. And so that's my new my new favorite spot, because it's uh, it's this interesting balance of um, old and new. There was an earthquake and tidal wave and fire all <laughs> all within the same day or two. It wiped out the whole center of the city. And so that was all that was in like 1755. And so most of the city has been rebuilt since then. So relative to Europe, it has kind of this whole center central part of the city that's new. And it's very hilly. So up on the hills on one side is a, a, an old medieval uh, era um, uh, castle. And so super narrow roads and, you know, uh, it was, it's you know, very much from you know, four or five 500 AD. And then there's another part that's kind of more Renaissance era. Um, and so it's it's like you want to capture a whole bunch of different European cities in one city. It's, it's really great and uh, and great food and kind of very similar climate to California. Um, so, uh, so, so I have, I have, uh, um, uh, I thought that was really great representation of, of many other places I've been in, um, uh, in Europe. I think the most important thing for, um, people who are, uh, you know, have been raised in America and not made it outside of the United States very much is to visit India and parts of Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to be, there tends to be a very big difference in level of development compared to here, whereas Europe, even though I think the, the cities look different, uh, it's still, they're very Western and uh, it's easy to get around speaking only English and uh, all, all these kind of things, not not terribly challenging. But if you go to a place like, like uh, you know, many parts of India, it's like there's people living in a like a temporal band where there's a thousand years that separate them, even though you're all there at the same moment in time and space. There, there are some people who live the same way that people are living a thousand years ago, right? They have nothing. They live on the streets. They beg. There, um, and there are other people who, you know, are living the best, the best of the, the, the modern world can provide, and they're they're all there together. So I've often thought, you know, there's this enormous economic and cultural disparity that makes those things happen in a lot of these places. It's also just this, this strange thing when you see how 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 people can be in the same geographic spot and, and live so differently. And I think we should all see that because it would change how we vote, how we think, uh, mm. what we do with our lives. And, and it's hard to get that by visiting all these, you know. Mm great European cities and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So you, you kind of touched on this, but the, the, another question is, if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? I figure that we have won the ultimate lottery, by and large, to be born in the United States. Like, can you imagine, like, anything better than that? I mean, to me, I just can't. I, it's like we have so much going for us that it just got lucky um, and didn't didn't do anything, just showed up, and here I was, and I had 
have all the things that 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 the U.S. has to offer. And how can we, you know, how can we not be empathetic and caring about the rest of the world and try to give them those opportunities too? Mm. So to me, it's just when someone asks me, like, what are you thankful for? I, it's 100 percent of the time. I never even have to think about. It. I am so thankful I was born in the United States. It's just like so lucky, and uh, and and I mean, just so unfair to everybody else. Mm. And so, how do we fix that? Well, we can't really fix what's already happened, but we can certainly fix the future. And uh, and so I think we should be trying to do that, all of us, and we have an obligation to do that. And um, you know, and it touches on. You know, every aspect of what we read about in the papers every day and um, and how we conduct our lives and what we work on and bottom line, like how I feel. Yeah. And then the final question, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? Uh-huh. All right. Well, I'm. Uh, that's, a good, that's a great question. For the last 10 years or more, I guess I've been in um, one form or another of long distance training, uh, either marathons or century bikes or triathlons. And so literally... Every Saturday is nearly every Saturday is chewed up with, you know, we're up at up at seven or earlier and, you know, we are home no earlier than two in the afternoon. And that whole time is spent running, biking, swimming or combination of, of the above. So I wake up and I think I do not want to do this. And then. I have to, I, and I now know that half halfway through the swim, I'll start to be happy I'm there. Mm. And uh, by, by the time it's all over, I'll think that was the ideal Saturday. But it's a buildup each time. <laughs> so yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I look at it. Cool. Well, thanks so much for doing this conversation. You're welcome. That was fun. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the website at VoicesOfSantaClara.com for some shortened transcripts. And you can like the Facebook page and follow on Twitter. I'll see you next time.